Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Bart, the CTO at Dropbox, and we discuss how to explore new technologies as a CTO, ways to think about site and product reliability, and a framework for acquisitions. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey, Joel. Hey, your camera looks awesome. What type of camera is that? You know, uh, I decided with COVID to uh, invest and I started looking around and I found that you can just take a DSLR and use it as your webcam. And uh, when you do that, you get much better image quality because in, in, this, in this world, like actually connecting with humans is hard. So, you know, the, the more you can kind of show your facial expressions, the better. You know, this allows me to like zoom in a little bit or you know, like control a little bit the image, uh, which which makes a huge difference, I find. What camera did you go with? Uh, you know, I just had this old Canon uh, Rebel T5i that I was using, you know, back when I was really trying to learn photography. And, um, you know, there's software now that works with with a lot of these, just turns it into a virtual webcam. So it's, it's nothing special. You know, I think it's even the stock lens. I mean, this is like a, this is actually cheaper than a lot of the higher end webcams. It's trivial. Yeah, it looks great. I think we have like a, a Canon T7i and the, mm-hmm. I tried to use an older camera too, but the problem was when doing the live stream, there was like these white boxes on the output for the HDMI. So I had to like upgrade the camera to be able to turn that off. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not trying to professionally <laughs> reduce my videos up a little bit easier than you, but you've got a very nice microphone rig there. Maybe I should step up my microphone game. To <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it looks so official, right? Because you've got like it the really boom does. arm and everything. <laughs> That's we, tr- we try, we try. Actually, so I'm very excited to talk with you because I'm a huge fan of Dropbox. Like we've been using Dropbox for all of our content since day one. We have like... And 10, 10 terabytes of video and audio oh, and different fantastic. stuff in there, but I'm, we're just like huge fan of the product. Fantastic! I got I got to ask, what do you like about it? It works. I would say that that would be the most simple thing. Um, when we needed this solution to store store stuff digitally, and you know we have like our producer and editors and everybody needs access to everything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we had to figure out our workflow, like educate ourselves, but it just, it works. And then I guess the other cool thing is that it's got this feature to like recover files. Like if it's messed, mm-hmm. if you like mess up or delete yeah, something or up. something happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you can recover files. So I think those two things are the, um, the big things that we, we notice it's interesting though because if you think about it some of the your best tools that just work and solve the just problem work. you don't think about them much yeah exactly that's exactly right you know this is what we thought about at google when we were doing search it's like you just want it to work because the things that are really become utilities in your life are the things that you don't have to think about they're like the air you breathe you know and and then you wind up using them more and more and they become structural in your life so that's that's great that's like the best feedback that it that it just works especially because for my domain my job is to make sure that it just works, you know, like aside from the product experience, is it like massively reliable and does it do exactly what it says, but does it never loses any data, you know, always make sure that we give you that experience day after day. That's how you become a utility in someone's life. I am curious, how do you respond when people, like you run into people in your everyday life because Dropbox is like a household name and they've got, mm-hmm. you know, their two cents about product features, like how do you as 
as the head of, of the technology at the company, like, how do you respond to that? You know, I find that everyone can teach me something, you know, and, and really what they're teaching me usually in that moment is what, what their needs are and what their experiences are. And what I find is the easiest mistake to make is to get disconnected from your customers. So that's why I always ask when someone says they like it, you know, I, I always ask like, well, what do you like about it? Because, you know, if you say you didn't like it, I'll say, well, what don't you like about it? Like, I want to understand your experience and your perspective. I mean, you sit in a really interesting space where you're doing huge amounts of video and audio processing and you need to, you need your data to flow through that pipeline. But there's other people who sit in the space of saying, well, you know, I just need to make sure that all of my personal files are stored, you know, conveniently. And a lot of times people have confusion. They're like, I don't understand why you make it so complicated. And really what they're saying is, I want this to be more of a utility and you're making me think about it too much. And that's great. That's great feedback. That's feedback we can take back to the team and say, look, like maybe what we should be doing is steering towards making the decision for you. That's right. 80% of the time and letting you reverse it instead of making you have to choose every time. I think we've historically in my career, have always gotten great feedback from just asking people, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And you, you know, you don't have to act on it right away, but you file it away and you think about it. That's why, you know, when, when you first, when we first started talking, I was like, I'm a huge fan of Dropbox and that'll, that's like, you get so many things right. And I've been a customer, I think since like either 2007 or 2009, like it was a long time ago, but because I remember like your original interface and at the time it was like the most advanced thing I'd ever seen. I was like, Oh, the designers there are crazy cool. Like it was so simple. And everyone else had that yeah. like 1995 windows look for their file file yeah. folders. And you guys had this super <laughs> modern look. I was just so excited about that. Yeah. So uh, I've just been, I've been a fan for uh, since the moment I needed this type of solution. And, and so uh, yeah. How did, were you, were you a fan of Dropbox before you started? Like what brought you to Dropbox? Yeah, you know, um, I first heard about Dropbox in 2007, I think, when Drew, uh, when Drew took it to YC. And, you know, I had this problem like everyone else did. You know, I was at Google and, you know, I had my kind of personal network and my work network. And Google internally did a great job of, like, file storage. You know, Google was at that point, like, you know, one of the world leaders in it. But I had this real problem that you couldn't use that technology effectively for your personal life. So when Dropbox showed up, you know, I was one of the early subscribers. I was like, this is fantastic. You know, like, uh, I think actually, <laughs> I think I heard about Dropbox because they did this great viral marketing. You know, I was wandering around San Francisco and someone walked by me and gave me a, like a business card. You know, back then business cards were like the norm. And uh, it was, but it was a weird interaction. Like it was someone I just met and it wasn't actually a business card. It was a coupon for like, I don't know, two gigabytes of, of data. Dropbox or maybe not even that much because it's probably like 500 megabytes or something but it was it was great I was like oh wait I can just go in because at that point I knew I needed this but I was cobbling it together you know I mean I, I'm a I'm a techie so like I had my own FTP server hosted on a machine in a data center you know I was running an open source project so I had kind of my own infrastructure and I would like store stuff at any time like I wanted to share a file with my friends. I was always giving them these like weird URLs and stuff and there was no sharing model and it was all security through obscurity. And, and I was like, God, this is just like, even then, you know, I was much younger. Even then I could see that this was not sustainable. It was like, I would have to like keep spinning the plates and all my various servers to like build my own like file sync and share network. And I was like, please let there be a consumer solution. And so when someone kind of gave, came up and like gave me this, this business card and I started using it, I was like, wow, that's a, complete game changer. 
you know, and so, and then I had some friends who went to Dropbox in the early days. I was very happy at Google. I was doing, you know, some really great mission work that I really enjoyed. Uh, so I wasn't seriously looking for a job, but some of my friends who I really kind of liked and respected uh, went to Dropbox. And so I, I visited offices and I kind of met some of the folks there and, and um, you know, I flirted with joining Dropbox back in 2014 um, when I was leaving Google. I'd been there for 11 years. And uh, at the time, Dropbox was a really interesting opportunity for me. So I sat down with Drew and Arash and other members of the team. But at the end of the day, I decided at that point that I really wanted to go do something radically different. I wanted to go apply. You know, I, I felt like I had built up this like deep domain expertise in technology and you know, understanding how to deploy things at scale. And, and I, I really had this sense of impact. So I wanted to do something different. So I wound up not going to Dropbox in 2014, but I advised uh, the team, you know, so uh, Aditya, the CTO at the time, asked me to come in and advise some of the, the engineering leaders. And so I did. I did that for a couple of years and I got to know the team. And, you know, I really liked and respected uh, what they were doing. And so when I started looking around again last year, and I met up with Drew again, and I was really inspired by the vision he has, you know, for making work more human, you know, designing a better way of, of us working together. And frankly, like with the advent of coronavirus, like it's become more important than ever for us to figure out how to be human. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I get a nice camera and I, I think very carefully about how you connect with other people, because in this moment, this is the norm, like being on a Zoom and like all of my meetings, I sit in this room for 10 hours a day on these meetings. So it's really, really important to figure out how to make this a more human experience. And uh, I was really excited last year about the vision Drew had. And I'm, I'm really excited to see where we're able to take it now. You know, now the world is kind of moving towards us in terms of the need for this is growing. Yeah, I saw you guys were getting into like different types of technology other than just file storage. Can you tell me a little bit about mm -hmm. that? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, oh, sorry, hang on a second. Hey, buddy, I'm in a meeting. Okay, but I got to do this meeting. I hope you're enjoying school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying your meeting. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that was so sweet. How, <laughs> how old? He's uh, five. This is his first day of school, so he's like super excited. To, oh, is, to... is he being homeschooled? Well, no, I mean, so, so California, uh, school is all... Uh, online right now it's all distance learning and so um, this is a really traumatic time by the way for parents because you know now you've got your kids so so in over the summer months you know you, you're in a situation where like you're you're kind of playing a dual role of like trying to work and trying to kind of take care of your kids but like they don't have they don't have a structure which is good and bad right they don't have a structure which means you can make a structure but now that they're going back to school and it's distance learning they're in your home they're, they're using your bandwidth, right? So like you may see me drop out or my audio may go because like I'm sharing my bandwidth now with a, with a bunch of other people. And, um, but they have a structure and that structure is very demanding and they can't always do it themselves. So, you know, I've got three kids. I've got an 18 year old who's a sophomore in college, a 17 year old who's a senior in high school and a five year old who's just started his first day of kindergarten. And they all have completely different experiences and you, you have to figure out how to make those experiences human in this world. So Remy today is getting an intro to his teachers and they're kind of talking about the school that he hasn't set foot in and may not for months, you know, maybe not even the whole school year. 
and they're trying to create this experience that you have in this first day of school where you get to show up in your classroom and meet your friends and shake hands and introduce yourself and you go on a tour and you're like, here's the library, here's the cafeteria, you know, like say hi to the janitor. It's like, say hi to the librarian. And they're doing this all on Zoom. The whole world right now is in this massive experiment. And, you know, the challenge is that our tooling was not set up for it. You know, like this, watching the schools reorient towards having this type of tooling is, it's incredibly hard. And so back to what you were asking about Dropbox, we believe that we can actually help with this because we, we sit at a really interesting place. We have, you know, we have massive amounts of users' files and we have user trust. And we have this one-on-one -on -one relationship with you because there's no third party involved, right? And so we built up trust and credibility in this space and we have the infrastructure to now deliver more experiences on top of it. So what does that mean? That means that in the challenges you face today, you have to figure out like, how am I gonna, how, how am I gonna organize my life? How am I gonna get through my day? How am I gonna communicate with people? What are my workflows when I can't meet in person? When some things that were paper are no longer paper, you know, like look at companies that are doing like real estate transactions, you know, they're very, very used to everything being signed on paper. You've got to move to e-signature solutions, right? You, you know, like we're seeing a massive surge in HelloSign, which is a company we acquired last year, doing e-signature solutions and workflow solutions, you know, uh, digital asset management, all these areas where like you need to shift the way that you work to continue working into this new environment. Same thing that's happening with school is happening in the workplace. So we are, we're being very thoughtful about what can we do to start from that base of files to start adding more and more value to everything you do beyond things like smart sync into things like collaboration, you know, into like figuring out ways that you can be more productive with the tools you have in the situation. You have. It's fun. It's a fun challenge. Did you guys build a password manager? Uh, we did. We built a password manager. We built life vault. Uh, these are pretty cool things. We built, uh, we launched Dropbox transfer. The password manager is really interesting because you want to, like, what are the things that, a trust relationship really buys for you, right? Like you want to store your passwords somewhere that you trust, right? You want to, you want to make sure that your files in your Dropbox are secure. You, it's more than just like, I mean, like the, the, your, your tax forms, your medical records, and your, like your, your random correspondence are three completely different categories of things right like you have to be you have to think about them differently you have to reason about them you have to have different security models and there's so much more we can do in terms of organizing your data as opposed to just giving you a folder like we're trying to move beyond this like you have a folder and you can put anything into it to like a smarter and smarter organization system for your life and then go from there to helping you collaborate with other people in ways that make sense like if you share a folder accidentally with someone and that folder has a subfolder in it, which has all your medical records, like you're in a pretty bad place. You want extra levels of thought and care and security to go into how that stuff's organized. And we're well positioned to actually start moving up that stack and sharing more and more of this, you know, the, these capabilities with our users. How do you decide like what to build? Like when you guys were thinking of the password manager, was it feedback from customers or were you laying out the landscape and saying, you know, what's next for the evolution of Dropbox and picking? Like, how were you deciding of all the different types of tools or services to build? Like, how did you decide password managers? Right. 
I mean, so we started with our vision to design a more enlightened way of working. So it's like, that's aspirational and it's up here. <clears throat> but you think, okay, like what would be the things that would ladder up to that, right? It's like, okay, we've got this base of files and we want to get up here. And so we start thinking, okay, like first we need to bring more of your life onto our system, right? It's not just, it's not just PDFs. It's not just like random storage. It's like, no, it's actually your structured life. Well, what's in your structured life? Well, there's the, the documents that you, you get digitally. There's the way that you organize them. So that's things like, you know, like medical forms versus financial forms versus like correspondence, et cetera. You know, photos versus documents, et cetera. And then there's also like how you organize all the things in your life that live in the SaaS space. And what is the key to organizing your life in the SaaS space? It's actually a couple of different factors. One is how you get access to it. And the second is, can you allow things to index it and start understanding it? Would you be able to say, hey, I log on to this site and I use it for a while, but then I want to leave it, but I want to take my data with me. Well, wouldn't it be great if Dropbox understood, first of all, how to get, create that access for you, and Dropbox can then sit at this central place of saying, I understand the web of SaaS applications that you live in, and then <clears throat> you could move stuff in and out of Dropbox as you start saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to use this for a while. Um, I'm going to, I want to, I want to deprovision. I want to stop using it. I want them to stop having my data. I want my data to go to a trustworthy place where I can keep it and organize it for the long term. Having, uh, having passwords, having transfer, having that connectivity, being able to do like cloud-based search and indexing, being able to have a central vault where you can put that data becomes a central place that you can organize your life from going forward. So like these are ways that you can actually start bringing together like your life. And so, so when you think of it that way, then access becomes important and passwords becomes a key part of access. And so vault, you know, the, the vault acquisition, the password manager we, we, we launched becomes pretty integral. So that, that's just kind of the way that we think about like decomposing that big vision into a series of steps we could take so we can start kind of helping users move up the ladder. It looked like, so you, you acquired a password manager? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's confusingly named Vault, V-A-L-T. And then we launched a product called Vault, V-A-U-L-T. So, <laughs> so you'll hear me say Vault, 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 Vault. It's actually, uh, yes, yeah, so we acquired V-A-L-T Vault uh, and then brought the team in and they like did an amazing sprint, used their kind of domain expertise and knowledge, worked with our security team, worked with our infrastructure team, rebuilt that product on top of our infrastructure and we just launched it. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like, so you mentioned that you acquired HelloSign for the digital signatures. So that's, that's smart because I was going to ask you the questions about like, you know, is the password manager just an experiment that may go away? But it seems like you're mm -hmm. acquiring lines of business and they already have customer bases and revenue. And so you're mm -hmm. just building, like you're just pulling in and these aren't things that are going to go away. They're not like experiments. They're things that like you, that, that you were doing. Yeah, I mean, when you think about acquisitions, you know, you, you kind of, I break them into three categories. There's business, there's product, and there's capabilities. So sometimes you acquire stuff just from a business perspective. It's like, hey, you know, we, we see a gap in our portfolio and having, you know, that, that thing plug into it makes a ton of sense. So that, that's, that's one approach. The product approach is, hey, we see the jobs to be done that our customers have, and we see the broader product arc that we want. And so we're going to start acquiring products that fit in right and so typically then you take the product you put it on top of your infrastructure to drive efficiency and then you you wind up adding it to your product portfolio and then there's kind of capabilities it's like 
wouldn't it be great if we had the ability to do cloud search or digital signatures or you know password management? And what you really want in these systems is for them to be connected together. So you acquire a bunch of capabilities and you put them under a platform. You know, we call it internally product platform. And then we expose them through APIs internally so we can say, hey, any of the products we have can use any of these capabilities in a, in a way that's like well understood, operation, reasonable operational characteristics, reasonable cost efficiencies, essentially like more than the sum of its parts. And then your products are the same way laddering up to your business. You're saying, okay, how could we bundle or unbundle this product offering to meet different customer segment needs? And then from a business perspective, you're saying, how does this all add up to a long-term business trajectory that really makes sense? So you know, that's how the kind of they ladder up. And then when you kind of look down on this, you're like, okay, great. Like, how would we think about what the business needs and how we satisfy our customers to continue this like valuable one-on-one -on -one relationship? So it's like for the business needs, it's like, what could we produce? What does the customer need and how are they connected? And then from there down to the product and then down from there to the capabilities. So I tend to live at the capabilities layer, like what capabilities do we need to bring under our product platform? Timothy Young, our SVP and GM of the, the core Dropbox business, he thinks about it more in the product lens. And then, you know, Drew and Olivia, our CEO and COO, are at the business level of like, what do we need at the business? I mean, that's rough characterization because we all do everything together. But when you think about like primary responsibilities, you kind of need those three pieces working together to make sure that what you bring on winds up being additive across, you know, the business, the customers, and the, the technology. Yeah, I, I was talking with this guy, Matt. Uh, he's like founder of this company called Gremlin about this concept that was fairly new to me called chaos engineering. Have you come across this yet? Chaos engineering. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I know the context of that. I mean, I know. Yeah. I'll, go, I'll, I'll go deeper, right? Yeah. So from what I get, and it, it was a new term for me too. And so that's why, I, and I Googled and there was like an O'Reilly book on it, but it's basically this concept of like breaking things intentionally. Um, mm. It's like you break them, you learn from them, you track your learnings. And, right, right. and it was, it was really kind of, he, he had started, um, I think at Amazon. And mm -hmm. when he was at Amazon, his job was to get the websites like fatal errors down. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm he cut, they cut them in half and they had all these like success or whatever, but he took all the, I guess the learnings from that and ended up building like a suite of tools to help engineers do this chaos engineering. So I was just curious, like, you know, I'll give a, like a specific example of a chaos engineering scenario. It would be like uh, that your server could uh, like triple the traffic to it and it would be fine or it would spin up another mm -hmm. instance. Right. So you would make that right. statement. You would like assert that that would happen. And then this test would run and it would create the scenario where it would actually like stress test or load test. And they have just like hundreds of these different things you can test. But yeah. I was just curious how like larger organizations are, how they're referring to that. Like, what are they calling it? Like site reliability engineer, like, and then how, how are they like testing it? So I didn't, and you might not even be the right person to ask. You may point me to someone else in the organization, but I was just, I was just curious for my own sake. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic concept. I, 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 I am familiar with this. Uh, I haven't heard to of it referred to as chaos engineering, but that, that totally makes sense. You know, the first I heard of it was Netflix doing it. They had a, a thing called Chaos Monkey, which is a, a process that runs inside Netflix that just like creates entropy, it just randomly like turns things up, shuts things down, breaks things, you know, like does weird, like, and, and you're testing your resilience, right? Um, 
We do the same at Dropbox. Uh, we have a similar mechanism. It's similarly branded. And, and what it does is within a certain set of parameters, it's just like a bull in a china shop. It just goes and it does a bunch of random things and we can unleash it. We have a few protected areas where we know things are a little weaker and we're shoring them up. But it's, it's great. It's great to find all the ways that things can go wrong. And that's, you can learn a huge amount from that because it exposes your biases. Like it, whenever, it, in all walks of life, I mean, you know, I spent five years at an ed tech startup and I learned a lot about cognitive theory and how, how humans really are influenced by their biases among a great number of other learnings in startups, startup land and education land. But uh, one of the things that you really learn is that we are all, we have a mindset and we have biases and they're the, they're the air we breathe and the water we swim in and we don't even notice it. And so the advantage of chaos engineering is it really challenges those preconceived notions like, oh, that can never fail. That could never happen. You know, um, I got a buddy who works uh, at SpaceX and when they were diagnosing why one of their Falcon uh, boosters blew up, like it was because of a situation that they believed could never happen and they hadn't guarded against it. And that's okay. Like those things are going to happen and the stakes are very high in that, in that situation. The key is to avoid the stakes getting high in the first place, right? Like, Ultimately, and you know, no knock on SpaceX that they're doing amazing work. Like, uh, there's always going to be some failures, but the trick is to like inject enough chaos and entropy and into your system as you build it, so that you know. So I would say that it's not the the right word for it is building a robust architecture, right? Building a robust a robust architecture requires you to challenge your mindset to understand where you know you might have some blind spots and find ways to uncover those. No matter how painful it is, you have to imagine what would happen. So we have our own data centers and Dimitri who runs our data centers, you know, he will go into a random data center every once in a while and just pull a, pull a switch. Okay, <laughs> like what, what happens if I do this? You know, like, you know, and you'll ask the team, you're like, what do you think is gonna happen? And then they'll, they'll form some theories and you know they generally they're very talented they generally know i mean about like forming theories and then he'll test it like okay great like let me pull that and we have automated systems that do similar things right like what happens you know if 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 this failure happens but it's not just technology so if you think about it in terms of team technology and processes right like it's a team mindset it is first acknowledging that you have biases even if you don't know what they are but you know that you have them right? And recognizing that you have to find them and challenge them. That's like step number one. And then building technology to help you find your biases and challenge them, right? And then it's processes, making sure it's part of your ongoing culture, right? Like this is something we care about, something we prioritize. At Dropbox, we do something called Wheel of Misfortune, where like people get together and they run these exercises where they say, okay, like you spin the wheel. It's like, oh, we've had this failure. Okay, let's talk through what would happen in that failure. And then let's start figuring out what would go wrong and how would we fix it and trying to like, we, it's almost like a pre-mortem. It's like, okay, we've just suddenly lost all power to this data center. What happens? How long would it take? What's our theory about what happens? You know, like prepare for it, practice it, and then try it, right? At some point, you, you know, let's not be reckless. Let's not, let's not lose our user's data or break trust. Let's not take the site down but let's understand how we can prepare for these things. Because if you believe it can't happen and you never prepare for it, and then it does happen, you, you're, you don't have a, a robust system. And that's, that's, I think, you know, the real value of chaos engineering. It's part of a broader, 
well, I, I haven't read the book, so maybe the chaos engineering uh, principles talk about it more broadly. But it is that broad, you know, set of things across the team and the tools and the processes that you need to make absolutely sure that you're building a robust system. I like the, the branding around all of them because you've got the chaos monkey and like the gremlins, like that little gremlin that like rips everything apart. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of fun. It's, it's like a, as an, so I've been an engineer programming for, you know, over 17 years. So like, I like it when there's things that you come across that are fun, but also useful. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of rare, but when you do come across them like, Oh, this is new. You know, when you've been doing something for, you know, that long, it's when you come across new stuff, it's like very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a nice, it's a nice evolution of the process. Right. And I think we've seen it as systems go to scale. You know, at Google, we used to say, if you take a problem and you make it an order, order of magnitude larger, it ceases to be the same problem. It becomes a whole new problem because of the scale you've taken on. You make a 10 X larger again, it's a different problem at scale. So as we started getting to this scale, truly, this is when emer technologies like this are emergent and, and necessary. Okay, so speaking of scale, right, I was curious about this. So, like, let's talk about cloud storage in general, because you're very bright. And whenever I meet people like you, I'm just like, curious, and I want you to answer questions and help me understand things or wrap my mind around concepts, right? So I'll go to a cloud storage site, and it'll say like, five nines, like we're 99.999%, whatever, safe, or secure, or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's to make mm -hmm. me feel good, right? So being the nerd I was, I was like, all right, well, if you have, you know, X amount of exabytes or whatever, then you're losing, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands of gigs and, you know, whatever it is. Right. Uh, like, I assume that it, that's wrong. There's some advanced system. There's a way that, like, can, can any can any cloud storage provider say that we've never lost anyone's data? Well, when they talk about all those nines, they're really kind of aggregating several different things. I'll just talk about the storage space for a second because it's different from storage and compute, you know, network, et cetera. So just storage, um, just to narrow it down. Storage really has three factors. There's durability, there's reliability, and there's integrity, right? And they're each going to have a different set of like nines associated with them. So rely reliability, like site reliability is, you know, how often is the site down? And reliability is, is important because if you want to make it 100% reliable, don't change it ever again. That's great from a technology perspective. SREs are like, that's fantastic. But that's bad for the business, right? It's bad for the user. Like, you know, we need to advance things like SmartSync so you have a better experience, which means we've got to push new code, which means site might go down. You know, like that's, that's, that's the challenge. And you're always dealing with the challenge of the ecosystem evolving. Like, there's newer hardware, there's new data centers, there's, you know, things are evolving. <clears throat> so reliability is typically, you know, three or four nines where you think, okay, like that's a real trade-off. It's, it's, am I willing to take say five, 10 minutes of downtime a month to get the velocity of being able to push faster? And I think, you know, users really do appreciate that tension, right? Like they, they want more features, they want things to improve and they're, you know, if you really, if I went to you and I said, listen, uh, do you mind if Dropbox is down randomly five minutes throughout this month so that we can push, like we can do two pushes and ship more features to you? You'd probably take that offer because the reality of it actually impacting you is pretty low, but the benefit is, is probably meaningfully appreciable. So reliability is separate from durability. If you stick something, a file in Dropbox, how durable is it? Will it last forever? Like, will it ever go away? 
Like, will you be able to come back to it 10 years from now and still find that same file? And I can tell you, you know the answer to that, right? I you do. probably put files in there in 2007. I did. I saw them. They're like some CSS files. I saw them right before this call. I was like, no there way. <laughs> right. So, so, I mean, obviously we don't have like, you know, decades of data, but we have 14 years of data, 13 years of data, like those files are durable. And then the question is integrity. If you open up that file, is it going to be exactly the same as when you put it there, right? And durability is high through replication, right? You basically say, okay, for every user gigabyte, we replicate it across multiple clusters in, in data centers around the world. Um, we, we shard it out into blocks. We make absolutely sure that we will never lose this file. And that has many more nines than just like three or four than site reliability. And then there's integrity, right? Will we ever corrupt a byte in any of your data ever? And that has a very long list of nines, right? That is something we care about the absolute most because it's, if, it's one thing if your site isn't available for five minutes, okay. It's another thing entirely if we lost your data or worse, we mangled your data, right? And so for integrity, you really care about every single thing that happens. So, you know, we, when AMD released new, new chips, we detected a single bit flip in one of the calculations across billions of operations. And we went after that single bit flip to find uh, a flaw. I mean, in, in one of the AMD processors, you know, it's, these are normal things that happen. We partnered up with them. We had some deep technical experts to go in there, figure out backtracking that to the actual flaw because at scale, a single bit flip that happens across a billion operations is going to damage your integrity. You can't flip a bit on a byte in a file. And it doesn't matter if you, if you went back into that CSS file that's 13 years old and you opened it and you saw one character out of place, that would be our failure, right? And that's, that's an unacceptable failure. So when you think about it, you know, just, just from the storage and, you know, file sync and share perspective, like these are the axes that they talk about now. Uh, I don't have the exact stats on hand, but like our, our uh, integrity number is like seven or eight nines, right? So what does that mean? Does that mean that like we will lose data from time to time or we will have integrity issues? It doesn't mean that. It means that the, the statistical likelihood of it is vanishingly small. Now we need to be eternally vigilant to make sure that everything we do prevents that from happening. And we need to make sure that we have a plan if there is a bit to detect it and recover from, right? So, you know, no one will ever say 100% because you, you, can't, you can't know for sure. So what you do is you wind up saying, how many nines uh, am I willing to pay for? And how do I keep pushing that envelope further and further? And that's, that's what you see kind of aggregated in a lot of the sites that are like, hey, we're 99.99. They're aggregating all these things and they don't want to try to break it down and explain it in this kind of long lengthy way that I just did because it, the, the typical consumer is like, I just want to like trust them and turn off my brain and not worry about it. I feel better now because like hearing you talk as you're talking, my brain's just like, this guy's so sharp. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, listen, uh, I've got an amazing team that does the work. So don't, don't mistake me for the, the person who does the amazing oh, work. Oh, I don't. Like the I don't. Team, I drop <laughs> the, the flattery is on your communication <laughs> skills, which is what I focus on, right? Like the way uh, you can articulate you. your thoughts and they're clear and you, you, you can't say these things without having thought about them at great length. It's just not possible, right? And for me, I respect that a great deal. I'm, I'm curious, 
you guys are, you mentioned San Francisco earlier. Are you, is Dropbox headquartered there? Yeah, our headquarters are in San Francisco. Okay. So I have spent a lot of time out there, like a good amount of time, mm -hmm. maybe three or four times a year for 10 years, right? And mm -hmm. I was, I saw, I think their name's Planter. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but, you know, billion dollar technology company. And they're like, we're leaving. Silicon Valley was in the headlines mm -hmm. last week. Did you see that article? I didn't, but, you know, there's, there's certainly been a few. Yeah, but so they blamed or they they mentioned like the 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 title was Planter moves to Boulder because of Silicon mm. Valley monoculture. And I was like, mm. so I Googled that phrase and it wasn't the first time it was used. Like there's lots of articles about it. Like, do you can you give me some insight or like thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I've lived in Silicon Valley since 1992. And so I've watched a few different cycles here. It's crazy actually. Hard to believe it's been that long. Why would you put it that way? Wow, 28 years. Uh, but yeah, I saw I, I saw pre-web. I saw web 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. I mean, I don't even know what web we're on now. But like the um, the interesting thing about Silicon Valley was in the 70s and 80s, it was uh, it was defense. It was all like Northrop Grumman and you know Lockheed Martin, and you know we had the the Moffett Air Base uh, for, you know, where NASA was doing tests. And uh, in San Francisco, it was a beautiful, small, like much more blue collar culture. San Francisco is 25% roads, well, <laughs> cities, but also 25% two-story buildings and beautiful houses, Victorians. And, uh, and San Francisco has evolved over that time. So what happens when something takes root and it has legs is that it starts to squeeze out everything else. So, you know, the culture in the 90s, when I came out, I joined Sun Microsystems. So Sun Microsystems was a big deal back then. But it was, it was like pre-web tech. And then web kind of moved in. And then, you know, I would say like the Yahoo's and the Excited Homes were like the early stage. Google really planted the flagship in, in the South Bay. And when Google demonstrated that you could make a massive, you know, trillion dollar empire off of this, you know, and, and Apple had its resurgence, um, even the big companies like the, the biotech pharmaceuticals like Genentech, the, the big companies who were here started to feel the squeeze because what happens right now you've planted a flag and everyone's like, I want to work for Google and this is pre-COVID. So they have to actually physically come to the Bay Area. They get a job. It pays a lot of money. They now have a lot of money. The company's gone public. And they're transacting that into the real estate market. They're buying real estate and they squeeze, they, they squeeze out people who don't have this. So a lot of what happened, you know, and I'm not an expert in this, but what I've seen is that it just became less and less economically viable to have diversity because you had this one kind of tech influence that just had so much money. And there's a huge backlash in San Francisco against it. People miss the old days, but it's also the modern reality. I remember in 2006, Larry Page got up at a Google All Hands when people were saying, please, can we open a San Francisco office? And he said, over my dead body, we're never going to have a San Francisco office, right? And it was the right call because San Francisco was too close. It would siphon off the energy from Mountain View, but it was also inevitable, right? And so now all the companies have offices in San Francisco, you know, big, huge, profitable startups in the tech space have started like the Ubers of the world, you know, Lyfts, you know, Dropbox, like they all started in San Francisco. And so what happened is, you know, more and more you have this, this culture of people joining to work in tech 
tech gaining more momentum, the tech money and the tech people squeezing out people who aren't in tech and your culture, it doesn't become necessarily a monoculture, but it becomes increasingly homogenized over time. And then of course, there's a backlash, you know, like tech is not just a, a, an end in and of itself. Tech is in many ways a means to an end. So now you have like expansion into, you know, more biotech and pharma tech and, you know, uh, medical, uh, health tech, fintech, but, but still it does create this culture and not everyone wants to be part of it. I mean, if you're a company that wants to hire people that don't do tech, this is not the best hunting grounds anymore. Like, and this will change, nothing lasts forever, but this is where we are now. And so I'm not too surprised that this is happening. The really interesting thing is what happens with coronavirus? What happens when some of these companies like Twitter says, hey, you can work from home forever. Like Google says you can work from home until you know, the end of the school year. Like all of a sudden where you live is dictated not by proximity to job, is dictated by the quality of life you wanna have and the people you wanna live near because the same way that you and I are having this, this call now, is how I do all my meetings. I could be anywhere. I don't have to be anywhere near. In fact, I haven't been to the office in six months. And in fact, no one has since we kind of shuttered it for coronavirus. So what's interesting to me is not where we are today, but the broader arc for where we will be in a year. Imagine that just 50% of the big tech companies in San Francisco go to this virtual mode. You know, like I'd, I'd say that's probably not too far off one way or the other. It's probably not 60, probably not 40. So call it 50%. That will change the culture because now you can work for these tech companies without moving to San Francisco. So that will relieve housing pressure. That will relieve, you know, like that will create space for the city to change and the valley to change. But, you know, it's still too soon to tell. This is just my prognostication, you know, based on what I'm seeing. <laughs> no, that, that's a good, interesting look on it. You know, I, whenever I see headlines that are interesting and then I dive into it, I, I take a lot, if I were an AI algorithm, I take a lot of data before I'm satisfied. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> to As wrap, you should. Yeah, to wrap my head around it. And I actually don't know like how much data is needed. Like I was, I was hearing somebody, uh, an evolutionary biologist talk about how much uh, weight goes into a decision and different types of decisions. So I'm still, I'm still learning about like how humans make decisions, but I'm always curious about the future. And I was thinking about quantum computing. I talked to uh, Honeywell a couple of weeks ago about they made like the fastest quantum computer. And just with new technologies or emerging things like that, how do you how do you approach that? Do you have like a team that does experiments? Like how do you check into emerging technologies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, to a certain extent, like. I think of the role of the CTO as being the person who runs the business with the lens of technology. You know, we have a, a, a person who runs the business with the lens of product and, and, and finance and organizational structure. But like from a technology perspective, it's important to understand where's the world going, what's, what's possible and what's not. Like truly get down to the fundamentals, like speed of light, like what is possible and what isn't. Figuring out when these things will happen and whether or not they're relevant and whether or not you can bend the curve. So quantum computing, I think it's awesome. I think there's some pretty amazing technology around it. The question is, is it applicable from a C just purely CTO perspective, as opposed to like, 
as a technologist, oh man, let's talk about quantum computing. As a CTO, I'm looking at it and saying, okay, will this, will this actually, is this a lever that the business can use to affect, a positively affect the experiences we're delivering to our customers? And as a result, the value of the transaction or the value of the company. And you know, from a quantum computing perspective, I'd say not quite there yet. From an AI perspective, for sure, right? Like, I mean, if you think about the Dropbox problem, you know, people have terabytes of data and it's like, you want to organize it. And the question is not, is the data there? The question is, what data should I be looking at now? Systems that can aggregate all the signals in your life and can start providing constructive solutions for you are awesome. The early days of this were things like Google Suggest, right? Like where, where you type a couple letters and it's like, yeah, we, you type W and normally we would say Walmart, but you're in San Francisco, so we're going to say Warriors is probably what you're looking for. Like getting to know that, that data, which is, by the way, why Google changed its privacy policy in 2012 to get more user data aggregated behind one user as opposed to having separate pools for search and Gmail and apps and everything. So being able to get more of that data to chew on to provide the right thing at the right time is super relevant. So like from a Dropbox perspective, like what we really need to do is say, hey, you just turned on your computer this morning and you want to do something. How much information do we need to predict what you need to do to start greasing the skids to make it a better and better and better experience for you, right? Like, do we have access to your calendar? Do we know what meetings are coming? Do we know what, what you know, like, do we have access to like enough information about your daily flow that we can start saying, ah, okay, here's how, you know, here's some suggestions for how you organize your day. And here's some ways that we can help. And so those are things where like vertical AI and ML capabilities can be super useful. Things like quantum computing are still pretty far out. You know, I would say that they are becoming more and more applicable for, for large complex systems like the human body or, or weather or things where like you need to be able to process probabilistically many, you know, trillions of states and start figuring out probabilistically which ones are the most likely to happen. But at the scale and the problems we're challenging or we're, we're challenged with, I don't think that, you know, I think that's still like a decade out from being viable. Now that said, you know, these things tend to move exponentially and they tend to move in fits and starts, you know, so it's, it's hard to say when that will become available, but you see this technology like being massively applicable. So I'll give you an example. I'm looking for a Nest camera. I'm looking online. Nest cameras can now do facial recognition and they will know when like someone you know is at the door. Like that's pretty cool. That's the aggregation of Google's deep machine learning, their optical recognition, their facial recognition, which is a fundamental part of Google Photos, being part of their platform, that platform being made available to the Nest team and the Nest team building that on top of their data streams at scale to be able to deliver a really, really useful feature to users that very few people can do. Now, anyone else can sit on top of Google's uh, facial recognition system because it's a public API that they sell, but Google can do it way more efficiently because they get it wholesale, right? And so, like, when you think about the ways that you can start knitting together some of these technologies, there's some really cool things you can do. But I think quantum computing is still just a little, little further out over the horizon to be practically applicable yet. First of all, I very much agree on the quantum computing 
being too far out there because I wanted to deeply understand it versus like surface level understand it. So I started taking courses on uh, algebra and all of these different like linear algebra is a basis that you'll need to understand how the functions actually work, like the mathematics behind it. But I, and then I, my conclusion from that like six, eight week binge of knowledge and then talking to the experts is it's like back when there were computers the sizes of rooms. Like it's yeah. definitely going somewhere. And But the mm -hmm. stuff right now is very machine code. We're not like the creatives can't get in there and, and do stuff easy with it yet. We're, we're like on day one over there. But for me, that's exciting because it... I get to watch and subscribe to like these feeds of like different uh, college projects and what they're doing with them. Right. And I'm right. always like watching out for like a commercialization opportunity, but let's yeah. um, like, before we end, I was, I wanted to continue that line of questioning. So let's pretend that I guess what I, what I want to get at is advice from you to other CTOs on how, like, let's say there is a technology that catches their eye that does look like it could be beneficial what are they doing are they are they going and finding a consultant there and then recruiting them and having them do a test project are they getting two of their trusted engineers to do a mashup how how do you tactically as a leader of the organization approach exploring a new technology that you believe has some legs mm. yeah it's a great question and i don't think there's any one answer so i'll just give you my answer you know how i go about it which Maybe, maybe it's helpful. I tend to think of it, you know, I tend to think of it both from the top down and the bottom up. From the bottom up as a pure technologist, I just, I just like to tinker, you know, like I, I like to give myself a project and go work on something and learn about technologies along the way. It's how I grow. It makes me happy. If I just get, you know, 30 minutes of tinker time a day, it just, it just like, it's like my meditation. It's great. And so I learn new technologies that way. And so I'm always exploring in kind of a similar way to, to you. Like I'm always exploring these technologies to like, how can I apply it? How can I learn about it? And then from the top down, I'm thinking, what is the business need? Like where, where are the significant levers in the organization? And I'm asking myself, can this technology move an existing lever or will this technology expose a new lever for us? Right. And so usually for me, the, the top down bottoms up um, results in either me going off and getting some hands-on time, which is a little self-indulgent. Like I can do these things on the side, but if I put myself in the critical path for anything like that in the business, I'm probably doing the business a disservice. So you, you know, we have an organization inside Dropbox um, where we have technical team members we call scouts. And the scouts, we say, hey, go explore this space and come back with your findings. And it's a little bit for them, like getting to scratch the itch that they have, you know, and very often they will suggest things. They're like, hey, I want to go explore this. And, and sometimes you have to constrain them. Sometimes you're encouraging them. Sometimes you're constraining them a little bit because there are things that are so far out there that you're like, there's, there's no way that's actually going to ladder up to value for the business. But that said, in that top-down, bottom-up process, what you want is a steady stream of those things bubbling up. Like, hey, you know, I mean, this is how we did ASMR at Dropbox. This is how we did a bunch of our, our technologies. Like people went out and explored it and they modeled it and they said, hey, here's how we think this might work. And you know, for every idea, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. Most of them fail. Um, the devil's in the details. You know, Again, it, it's one thing to do it once on a prototype on someone's laptop. It's another thing to try to do it just internally for our internal users. It's a completely different world, multiple orders of magnitude up 
to try to actually deploy stuff like that. And typically what happens is as you try to scale it up, you discover new and new and new blockers because no one's greased the skids for you to do this. And so you have to ask yourself, how far out on that new frontier do you want to get in to, to actually try to make something like this work? So there's really that kind of top-down lens, which I believe the CTO has to bring to the conversation. And then there is the kind of bottoms-up enablement, like, like finding folks in your team who are great explorers. I've got this guy on my team who, for his, uh, when he's on vacation, he will go uh, disassemble libraries and see how they work and understand like, and you'll come back and be like, hey, I found this thing that we can do. This is the guy who in the early days, remember when you first used Dropbox? I don't know if you used it on a Mac. Yeah. Um, Dropbox would put a little icon next to the file saying we, we've synced it for you. Mm -hmm. that, was an un, that was a private unapproved Apple API that a very, very creative Dropbox engineer went and he punched a hole through this to add that. And it's not, was never endorsed by Apple. They didn't really love that we were doing this, you know, but we added so much value for our users that they saw the value and they found ways to support it. And now Apple's rolling out their own kind of like sync APIs and they've added that as a feature, but it came from, from this guy, Max, being a scout, going off, figuring it out and pioneering a thing that we were able to deploy at scale, you know? So like some of these things really make it all the way through, but many of them fail and that's okay. They're just, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that process of kind of top down, bottom up is where the, the magic happens. Yeah, that was one of the design pieces of magic because you never saw that interface before. When you first saw those green check marks, it was right. mind blowing. What? What? Not native. <laughs> well, I want to yeah. be respectful of your time. For the intro, how do I pronounce your name? Oh, hey, uh, yeah. So that's, that's a great question. We, we kind of dived right in. We didn't get to that. Yeah. So my, my name is, uh, is an old Sanskrit word. Uh, Bharat, which means India. But most people can't pronounce that. So when I was in high school, I changed it to Bart. So everyone calls me Bart. Even the Indians call me Bart, which makes them a little uncomfortable, but it just makes life easier. So most of my life, people have called me Bart. Boom. I'll go with Bart then. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Hey, I would, um, just because you sh when you shared that story of the guy pulling out cords, that was like the exact same story that uh, Matt over at gremlin shared that somebody uh -huh. at amazon was doing um uh -huh. so as an engineer i i would like i don't recommend products often that's why i feel awkward right now but i would check it out like i would i would have a scout or i would have somebody take a look at it and i'm not articulating it well but mm -hmm. when i saw it i was like this is like tdd for site reliability engineering it, it struck me as something that i got excited about and i think will be big in the future whether they, like I think you'd get like inspiration from it, like mm -hmm. not become mm -hmm. a customer, but like just what what they're doing was just really unique to me. It stood out to me a lot. Um, yeah, and it, yeah. it came up in this conversation. So if you do have a tinker time, I would check out that Gremlin thing. Great, thank you so much for the lead. I, I, I'll, I'll, I, love, I love to get leads like this, I'll run it down. Yeah, I don't do it much, only when things like blow my mind and then they come. <laughs> but thank you yeah. so much, I'll add you to the list. Maybe come back next year, catch up, see how things are going. And uh, cause we had, I had like, oh, like pages of stuff that topics, other things we could talk about, but it was really great hanging out with you today, Bart. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too, bud, bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io.
Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going. 